Welcome to Constitutional Futures, a podcast series from the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences Faculty at Queen's University at Belfast, examining debates around constitutional futures on this island and these islands. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's and delighted to be joined today by Frank Connolly. You're very, very welcome, Frank, to the podcast series. Thank you, Colin. Frank is author of an excellent book that is just out, United Nation, The Case for Integrated, Integrating Ireland, and I would strongly recommend our listeners uh, to get hold a copy of Frank's excellent new book. Frank's one of Ireland's most distinguished investigative journalists. His previous books include Namaland, Tom Gilmartin, and he's also published a novel, A Conspiracy of Lies. He's head of communications at SIP2 and lives in Dublin. And again, Frank, you're very, very welcome uh, to Constitutional Podcast Series. Frank, timely is an overused word in these discussions, but I'm going to use it in a way today. This is a timely discussion. I wondered if you could start by talking about the origins of your new book. What led you to to write this book? Well, back in early 2020, I was in discussion with the the publisher, um, Gail Books, who have done my previous work, or two of the non-fiction works you referred to there. And we were discussing what would be a good follow-up to Namaland, which came out in, in 2017. And I said, I suggested that the issue of a unity referendum Uh, and a debate about United Ireland was likely to become very topical. Now, this is February 2020. I had been in discussions and had been engaged in some of the the meetings that Ireland's future had had over the previous uh, 12, 18 months. And I was watching the, the, the rise of this debate or the intensification of this debate, particularly in the North over that period. And of course, it also coincided with, with, um, with the ongoing Brexit debate. And in February 2020, if you recall, there was less than a year um, before the prospect of a no-deal Brexit was upon us, because the, the, the negotiations between the EU and, and the UK government were due to expire at the end of 2020. As we know now, it, they were extended for another year before a, a final Brexit package was agreed. So that was February 2020. Um, At that stage, the debate certainly wasn't as lively as it became in subsequent months and indeed uh, over the last two years. Um, But it was also just before the arrival of COVID. So within a couple of weeks of me starting the research on this book, uh, COVID came upon us. um, And that in itself created another narrative. So on the one hand, you had the narrative of the Brexit discussions as they were unfolding in their twists and turns during 2020. And and of course, the increasingly heated debates about and concern over the prospect of a a no deal. And at the same time, you had this um, almost unprecedented pandemic hitting um, the world and indeed the country. Um, Brexit, of course, had huge implications for for the North uh, and indeed for the island of Ireland. And I followed Brexit in that context of how it was affecting relations within the North, relations between Britain and Ireland, and how it was likely to affect uh, the quality of life, um, people's jobs, um, industry, agriculture, the economy on the whole island. 
over that period of, of months leading up to, um, to the end of 2021 when the, when the withdrawal and the trade and cooperation agreements were, were made. And then at the same time, I was following COVID because it also had implications for, for this all-island discussion. And as you and, and, and all your listeners will know, um, the debate raged during those early months in particular as the COVID uh, surges hit Ireland north and south disastrously, I would say. Um, and there was an argument as to whether, given that we're an island, that we could have done more with an all-island response to mitigate the, the devastation caused by COVID. We know that 10,000 people died north and south between February 2020, March 2020, and, and the end of 2021. Um, and many of those deaths, as, as some of those people I interviewed uh, argued at the time, could have been prevented um, um, if, if proper all-island methods had been introduced to prevent the virus from, from arriving in the country in the first instance. And indeed, in terms of the, the, the response, both north and south, if that had perhaps had been more aligned and coordinated. That's great, Frank. One of the things that's really noticeable from your, your work and, and the book is the diversity of voices that's included in the work. You interviewed a wide range of people for the book and, and you, you allow those people in a sense to speak through through your book, which I think is a remarkable contribution to the current debate. But you know, what did you learn during the journey of writing it? Did you were the things you didn't know before you started? What what, what was the learning process for yourself in, in completing this book? Well it, it was quite considerable um, because I had to dig into issues like the potential for an all island health service and how that would work. Uh, of, a, of an all-island education system. And that meant looking at the complexities and the obstacles presented in both jurisdictions by the current setup of, of the health service north and south. And as I've mentioned, COVID exposed huge problems with, in terms of the public health response to this pandemic in both jurisdictions. Um, and similarly in education, I mean, I had to dig into those arguments that many of us have touched on um, about, you know, the, 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 the ideal of integrated education, for example, which is an ideal, uh, particularly in the context of the North, that many people have argued for and aspired for, but which isn't that easy to achieve, given the community barriers and the fact that, you know, there, there is a geographical separation of the, of, of the two main communities, um, the, 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 those from a Protestant culture and those from a, a Catholic or nationalist culture. So I'm, it meant looking into the existing um, setup of education and what was happening in terms of academic selection, in terms of the prospect of a, a, a more widely shared education system across the communities, uh, what's happening in the schools in middle class as opposed to, as opposed to the much more um, um, separated working class communities and urban communities in the north. And, and similarly to examine uh, the, the inadequacies or the shortfalls in the education system in the South um, in terms of inequality of access, and that's, that's a class issue or class inequalities, um, in terms of the control of the uh, continuing control of, of the church and churches uh, over education and over land uh, and, and schools, um, which of course exists on both sides of the border. And 
um, in terms of the the quality of, of third level and access to third level education. Um, so in it, it was a, a certainly a learning experience and similarly with the economy I mean there's there is a lot of work being done and I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to to people who are already doing research in these areas. Um, I mean Seamus McGuinness and Adele Bergen have done really important work on the economy com com comparative work between North and South on on life expectancy on educational uh, uh, development um, on the potential of, of an all-island economy, on the shortfalls in, in income and employment levels north and south and productivity in particular. So they're just a couple of examples of, of where I had to, had to do a fair bit of research and learning through the interviews I did with people like Gabriel Scally and John Crown and in the health service and as I mentioned Seamus but you know people like David McWilliams who's been writing about all-island economy also all-island transport strategy um, um, agriculture, um, cross-border trade, um, and 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 at the same time follow developments in all of those areas as they were as they were as they were unfolding during those two years. I suppose that that highlights you know an important point made earlier about the timely nature of the book, but it it does seem that rarely a week goes by without some new initiative or comment piece or some discussion about the constitutional future of, of, of the, the island. In fact, the intensification of interest is something, you know, the, the amount of preparatory work that's actually been done. But I suppose, why do you think this is happening? What has changed uh, to encourage this momentum at the moment? Obviously, Brexit has been a, a game changer uh, in terms of the impact it's having on people's lives. Um, a lot of the fears of workers and trade unions in the south were mitigated to an extent it wasn't as bad as we thought it might be but that's to do with the protocol um, similarly it wasn't as severe an impact on jobs and business and industry in the north and agriculture in particular because the protocol mitigated a lot of uh, the potential damage that could have been done to trade both between North and South, which has, of course, escalated and intensified over this period, but also between Britain and Ireland. That's not to say there haven't been effects, and, and we know there are in terms of shortages of supplies, increasing cost, delays in transport, bureaucracy, etc., etc. Um, but but not, not, what, not as bad as we, as we might have predicted back in, back in early 2020 when I started this process. Um, so Brexit has had a huge impact on this debate, and then, of course, you had the response of the unionist community, or particularly political unionism, to, to the protocol. Um, and I mean, I don't need to, to explain it to you or your listeners that, that you know, the DUP in particular never supported the Good Friday Agreement and in, in many ways saw Brexit as a means of perhaps reinforcing or reintroducing a border uh, to trade um, and indeed otherwise on, on, on Ireland or in um, in Ireland, instead they got they got something that even Theresa May tried to avoid, which was a, a so-called border in the Irish Sea, which dislocated and and has affected trade between Britain uh, between the UK and, and and the North. So that in itself contributed to the to the unsettling period back at Easter 2020, uh, when you had 
uh, on the anniversary, around the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, actually, in April 2020, um, um, some disturbances within the loyalist community and almost uh, um, open, open street conflict, uh, which, which those disturbances, in my view, were, were aimed at provoking with, with uh, young people on the, on the nationalist side, um, particularly in Belfast, but other urban areas across the north. And you had, of course, the internal uh, conflict within unionism. Uh, the DUP, I mean, had three leaders in almost as many weeks during that period of 2020. The UUP had had two or three leaders over a couple of years. Again, a reflection of of the uncertainties and um, and internal divisions within unionism. Um, so, all of that was going on. We had um, we had also the, the the pandemic. Remember, so that in itself was creating divisions between the parties in Stormont. Uh, with, with, with some of the parties arguing that uh, there should be more of an all-island response and I think the DUP in particular um, resisting that suggestion and unfortunately following directions from a UK government that was dealing appallingly with, with the COVID crisis, one of the worst responses of any country in Europe as we know in the UK and one of the highest fatality rates. So that was causing dissension within within Stormont. You had, for instance, the Bobby Story funeral happened, I think, in, in late July of 2020, or in July 2020. That in itself created um, political divisions within, within the government. And then you had uh, two very important things happened um, across the island. One was the 2020 general election in the south, where Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael were forced to cobble together a government for the first time since the foundation of the state and since the Civil War, where the two main opposing uh, parties within the Civil War came together, um, in many people's view, to stop Sinn Féin from getting into government after their uh, quite extraordinary results in that 2020 general election. Again, COVID uh, delayed the formation of that uh, government, um, which the two big, two main parties formed with the Greens um, uh, back in the early summer. And you had um, the other political developments, of course, happening within Britain. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, in late 2019, um, effectively taking over uh, the reins from Theresa May during the summer and then going on a tour of, of European states, meeting Macron and... Um, and, and the European Commission and other European leaders and finding that they weren't in any way enamoured by his approach to the Brexit negotiations um, and then the subsequent election in, 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 in Britain. Um, so all of those were, were, were what you might call in the mix during this period. And going back to your point, of course, while that is reflected in the narrative of the book, um, it, it is sort of, that's a thread that goes through it, or two threads, Brexit and COVID. But what, what joins those threads are the interviews with various people, um, as I've mentioned, in, in, in health, in education, in constitutional law, including yourself, um, people like Brendan O'Leary, uh, Dermot Walsh and policing, um, um, two former EU um, Commission diplomats on, on, on future EU relations and, and the view of the European Union on, on long-term prospects for, for Irish unity. Um, 
security and of course culture because in my view um, and it's summarized very well by Michael D. Higgins, the president, in the final interview where he says we should start with what we agree with. Uh, and he argued that the debate on a future island um, is, has, to, has to be done properly and has to be inclusive, has to involve those people who don't like the idea of United Ireland, or at least not now. And it has to include the voices of people who, who are expressing how Ireland could be better. And that includes our artistic community. Um, people like the writer Brian Keenan, who was born in East Belfast, has done, I think, a really powerful interview on what it could look like, a united Ireland, embracing uh, all of the diversity, uh, both religious and artistic and ethnic, etc., um, and gender. And uh, Emma Campbell from the Array Collective in Belfast, who won, a, won an award last year, who who's very um, explicit about what young people and people from the gay community, um, but also what artists and, and young people who are fairly left-wing, and she's talking from a Belfast perspective, what they would be concerned about when it comes to this new island and, and how their fear would be that it would be dominated by, by the voices of the right that, uh, that have impeded progress on both parts, both jurisdictions, for so many decades. So much of that conversation, Frank, is about planning and preparation and that phrase keeps coming up you know in your book and in the discussion at the moment but do you think enough is currently being done to prepare properly for this and, and who should be leading that work well again there are voices including yours in the book who've argued and indeed others like like Niall Murphy and 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 uh, Brian Feeney and others Andre Murphy from from Ireland's future and you've been campaigning for a number of years about the need for preparation, citizens' assembly, um, Mary Lou MacDonald and, and Stephen McGlade, who's a Sinn Féin um, uh, member at Stormont, who's, who's quite influential, and he, he, he gives a really detailed analysis of, of how the Stormont administration potentially uh, can, can create the ground for what we might call transitional arrangements in the future towards United Ireland. People are thinking about it, and people know that if you don't prepare, um, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail, as Roy Keane once famously said. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. I mean, how could you allow the Irish people to engage in discussions and potentially a referendum? And remember, it's the British Secretary of State who decides on the timing of a referendum. Um, some people, including Jim O'Callaghan, who I interview in the book of Fianna Fáil, um, um, uh, TD in Dublin, and a barrister who argues that we'd want to watch out, uh, um, uh, um, that, that we're, not, we're not bounced into a referendum without preparation by a, a, a Tory government that has its own agenda and not necessarily the best interests of, of, of the people of Ireland at heart. So... Preparation obviously should begin, and, and I, what, I've, what I've said is, and what comes across in the book, when you look at the work that's already been done, including by the Aaron's Project, which is the analysing and researching Ireland, North and South, a really important academic exercise, bringing together um, universities from Ireland, Britain, the United States, uh, and people looking at these detailed 
questions that we've looked at, that we've, that we've touched on, um, education, health, the economy, productivity levels, etc. If you look at that, that work is important. The, the John Doyle, whom I quote uh, from Dublin City University, looks at the, the real significance of the subvention, for instance, where he argues that it's not a 10 billion sterling subvention each year, that if you take out certain components of that, such as pension liabilities, um, uh, debt liabilities, uh, foreign affairs, defence expenditure, even the monarchy, the cost of the monarchy, then you bring it down to something more in, more in the order of 3 billion. And if you look at that 3 billion, put it in the context of the overall value of the, of the, of the economy in the South, which is about 400 billion um, annually, it's a minuscule amount of money. But when you add in then the potential benefits um, of, of, of a project to create and develop this all-island economy with one single health administration, a single education system, it's not going to happen overnight, it'll happen over a period of years. But that in itself, I think, could create an extraordinary um, potential for, for inward investment and indeed for economic uh, for for very rapid economic growth. Now, of course, we're you know the, 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 I, this is not utopia. Although Michael D. Higgins in his interview refers to utopia as, as from the Greek word utopos, which actually just means better place. That's what we're looking for. But instead of people being f terrified by the prospect, as as one Irish Times poll put to people early last year um, about would you be you want a united Ireland, yes, 70% of people say yes, but are you going to pay higher taxes? Well, in a way, it's not fair to, to put things as simplistically as that. That's when it comes back to your point about preparation. People should know what they're voting on, and that includes cost-benefit analysis. It includes looking at, at the prospect for an all-island government. It includes the question of transitional arrangements, which may include a certain amount of devolution. Um, and it includes... Uh, looking at, at the prospect of an all-island uh, transport strategy, an all-island sustainability strategy, an all-island response to climate change. And John Sweeney argues very strongly in the book, uh, who's a meteorologist or a climatologist from, from, from uh, Maynooth University, that the only way you can deal with climate change challenges is through an all-island response. And I think that, 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 that should bring everybody... Um, um, Everybody should consider that issue because it's, the, it's an existential crisis, obviously. So preparation, citizens' assemblies, perhaps rolling citizens' assemblies across a number of years, dealing with individual topics or collection of topics, um, a, a white paper, a government green paper and white paper, um, perhaps a constitutional convention involving both pol political representatives and civic society. They're all the things that should be in, in the mix. Consultation, very, very basic consultation in communities across the country, north and south. Um, all of these things are possible. It's a small island, and, and what, what we're looking at is, would we be better off, and not leaving aside people's cultural and traditional allegiances, and I mean by that people who have an allegiance to Britain and to the Crown, etc., etc., but would we be better off, and would our children be better off, and our grandchildren be better off, having a single... Ireland run by a unitary government or, or a variation of, of that uh, of 8 million people uh, rather than the current divisions that we have. And, and I'll just finish on that point because some people argue, well, we're not ready 
we're not ready to, until we get ourselves together in the south, get our health system, our housing situation and crisis, get our, our, um, our um, social welfare and other um, childcare situations sorted out. And meanwhile in the north, get the health system properly functional, get our education system uh, up and running towards a more, um, um, a more acceptable um, and open and, and um, inclusive education system that we have to get both of those done separately. I, I believe, and the more, and you asked that question earlier, the more I study the question and the more I looked into these areas, I actually think it's only possible to do those things on an all-island basis. And that's another impetus for this discussion. Well, Frank, taking that point forward, the Irish government is using the framing at the moment of a shared island and they've launched a number of initiatives and there's a you know a unit established the shared island unit i just wonder what's your view of the various shared island initiatives launched by the irish government is that a helpful way of thinking about relationships on the island now and in the future well i think anything that that involves looking at potential all-island cooperation on all of those areas that we've discussed anything that improves the research and the knowledge and the information we have. And remember, the ESRI and uh, the, the, the Social and Economic Institute in the North similarly are involved with, with British counterparts as well in some of that research. Uh, I mentioned the academic, you know, the universities are doing similar work. And all of that is good, but in my view, it's, it's not enough. Um, the government in 2020 and then in 2021 committed 500 million to this shared island unit um, to encourage that research and identifying areas for cooperation and indeed some practical cooperation. Um, but IBEC, um, the employer's body, responded by saying it should be more like a billion. Um, and the reason they're saying that is because they recognise, the employers recognise that, that an all-island economy is potentially very good for business. And indeed, we, the protocol, in a way, has, 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 has shown that. And, and, you know, without getting bogged down in that, we, we know that from the trade figures and we know that from the response of manufacturing Northern Ireland, you know, that, that, how, how they've assessed the, the benefits of it and the agricultural community, the dairy processors, etc. But IBEC are also involved in the shared island unit discussions that take place on a quarterly basis, which also include the trade union movement, and other sectors of civic society. And they sit down every couple of months to, to, to plan out work that can be done within this umbrella of the, of the Shared Island Unit. The National Women's Council have accessed monies and funds from the Shared Island Unit to further women's projects on an all-island basis. All of that is, is useful. If it's a substitute, though, for, for preparation on constitutional change for citizens' assemblies, well, I think that, 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 that means it's slowing up what, what should actually be happening because um, and it may be that this you know the, the instability and particularly the the antics of the British government in relation to the protocol and, and, and their obstruction of the negotiation with the EU um, and indeed their breach of an international agreement some people would say well now is not the time because of you know we're, we're in a rocky situation with this Tory government well my reaction to that is if we don't do it ourselves, uh, we'll end up in, in deeper trouble when, when the same Tory government that we're criticising uh, for breaking agreements turns around and does something even worse in relation to our um, British-Irish relations. 
I, that also begs the question of how, how involved are the people that we need to get involved in the discussion, particularly within the North, because obviously a referendum um, which has to happen as a consequence of the Good Friday Agreement is an agreement made and nationalists in the North in particular have a right to expect a referendum because they were promised to one. That was the deal, um, that there would be no change without the majority of people in the North voting for, for unity. Um, but at the same time, everybody had a right to a vote on this issue. And if you look at the electoral changes recently, where most of the parties, about 55, 56% voted for parties that supported, most of the people voted for parties that support the protocol. If you look that, at that in the context of the Brexit vote, where 56% of voters in the North voted to remain in Britain, that had to involve significant, obviously, numbers from the nationalist community or cultural background, but also significant of the others, the people who are, don't define as nationalist or unionist, and indeed a significant number of unionists who are concerned about their children and themselves being left outside the EU when they want to take advantages of EU membership. Now, those are the long-term trends that I think are what we should be looking at, and we have to engage all of those people, not just the 56%, but the rest in exploring this idea. And I, I, in the book, I talk to people like Ian Marshall, who is a, a UUP um, member now. He wasn't at the time. He was he would just... Um, left his position in the Senate in, in, in Dublin, um, former head of the Ulster Farmers Association, um, Denzel McDaniel, a, a former editor of uh, the, the impartial reporter in Fermanagh, Linda Irvine, who is a very courageous um, woman activist, Irish language, and indeed um, sporting activist in East Belfast, and uh, Tommy Winston, a former UVF member, all of whom agree, not necessarily that they would vote for United Ireland, um, but that certainly there should be a proper conversation about what it would mean for them and for their communities. Thank you, Frank. I suppose that takes us on to the question of, relates back to earlier, how do you encourage people to participate in a discussion who maybe don't want to participate in discussions? This is often raised in the context of unionism, political unionism, perhaps quite understandably wants to focus on um, you know, developing a, a pro-union position. I just wonder your thoughts on you know, engagement and participation with people who maybe are hesitant or reluctant or simply unwilling to engage with this discussion. Well, the first thing I'd say about it is my, and again, something I learned uh, over the last couple of years, is that those discussions are already taking place within the unionist community. And they're much wider than, than I would have thought when I started out on this uh, research. And what I mean by that is that depending on where you are in the North, and I'd like to do more of this work over the coming months. There are groups of people across the communities talking to each other about what this debate means for them. And they're happening in dining rooms and in living rooms and in bars and in communities, not everywhere and not with everybody, but they're certainly taking place. And um, I think you'd be blind not to know, not to notice. And one way you notice is by the fact that when some of those groups who are most vociferous in not even wanting to discuss the idea, and I mean, and that includes um, some of the unionist parties, the DUP, the TUV, and the UUP to a, to a large extent, um, that when they call people on the streets to support their positions, they don't tend to get too many people out shouting against the discussion. 
Now, the protocol has been used as, as a, a means of, 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 of mobilising those people against what they see as uh, the weakening of the union. But again, and I accept that there's a significant vote has gone, you know, maybe 25% um, in, in the case of the recent elections to the, to the DUP, or 25 seats, um, um, and a significant, you know, obviously a, a percentage of the vote for unionist parties, anti-protocol parties. But I don't think, if you look at the numbers who have now moved to other parties, Alliance being the most notable um, beneficiary of this, um, and I said it earlier, when you look at the overall total, you're talking about over 50, 55% who, who, who supported uh, parties that, that agree with the protocol. Um, of course, there are difficulties with the protocol. Nobody's going to deny that. But to use the protocol as a reason not to discuss the future of Ireland and the fact that a referendum is due to happen at some point in the coming years, I think is disingenuous, to say the least, and dishonest. You, you'll be delighted to hear, Frank, that um, we've reached the, the final question in terms of the, the podcast, and it's a, a bit of an unfair question and prediction and exercise and prediction, but wh why not? There's a tendency to frame this discussion increasingly as a discussion about this decade that we're in, the, the 2020s. And if, if you and I were having this conversation in 2030, what do you believe might have changed by 2030? Well, there's another elephant in the room which I didn't and we haven't touched on yet and that's the fact that Sinn Féin, <clears throat> not only did they have a very strong election in, in February 2020, but they are now in the late 30s in terms of the opinion polls and I'm not, I deliberately avoid talking about opinion polls too much because of the uncertainties there. But it's very, very likely that Sinn Féin are going to be in government both North and South if and when the government in the North is re-established and I think it probably will be. Um, and in government in the south as the lead party over the next um, couple of years. So if you take that this government sees out its full term, and there's no guarantee that that will happen, uh, this government in the south, to 2025, um, the last five years of the decade will see a, a Sinn Féin left radical led government um, no matter who else joins that government, um, by, by numbers it looks like Sinn Féin will, will, will dominate it. And of course Sinn Féin has, a, has an agenda for United Ireland, um, it's one of their raison d'etre, and um, they will also be in, in this, you know, probably leading position in, the, in, in whatever administration emerges from this current crisis in the North. That means that the issue of a referendum will be on the agenda. And even more reason why we should be talking about it now and preparing for that time. I also think, though, that there will be a significant um, resistance to the change that that Sinn Féin will be seeking to to effect in in both jurisdictions, particularly in the South, obviously, because they haven't been in government before. Um, I think there will be uh, resistance anyway to those people in significant positions. It's referred to as a, a culture of partitionism in the South. Um, I, I interpret that not as the fact that ordinary people or the mass of ordinary people um, don't want to have anything to do with the North. I don't believe that. Um, I think that's 
that doesn't tie in with the cultural links, the sporting links, the, uh, the way in which the country operates, um, the way in which people see each other on a day-to-day -day basis, whether they, where they meet and where they have holidays, etc., etc. But what it does mean is that there are people in significant positions of power and have been there for a long time. And that is within both the public service and the civil service and within the private professions, let's say, um, where you have small empires. And I think there will be a, an issue not just resisting the prospect of a United Ireland vote, but also of the changes that need to be made in the health system and in the education uh, system and in, 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 in the treatment of workers, for instance, in legislation for equality. Um, collective bargaining, all of the things that modern European democracies, and I'm not talking about left-wing uh, led countries, I'm talking about modern European democracies take for granted. A proper housing system of, of, of cost rental and affordable housing provided by the state. I mean, it's, it, you know, you want to be blind not to see that we have to do that because the market cannot do it. Not to mind, will not do it, but cannot do it. So, um, all of these challenges, are, and to come back to your question, all of these challenges are facing us. It is ironic, perhaps, historically speaking, that we may be in a position where, for the first time, we actually have a left-led government in the South and possibly in the North at the same time, for the first time in the history of either state. Um, and yet the challenge facing, it may be that that's the formation, political formation, that's required to achieve all the things that we've just discussed today. Well, thank you very much, Frank. There's a thought to leave us with in the podcast uh, today. I just want to thank you again for joining the Constitutional Futures podcast series, for sharing your reflections and insights. I know they'll be of considerable interest to your audience. It's very much appreciated you taking the time to do this. Just want to congratulate you again on your wonderful new book and just to wish you well in your ongoing work. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Colin. Thank you.